Well, amen. Well, it's good to be with you, Northland. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. As you're turning there, if you can find a vest like Gus is wearing, man, I'd wear that sucker. That is a nice vest. I don't think I could fit it because he's just a little bit smaller than me. Just hey, wherever he is. That, that was a small joke there, Gus. Anyways. Well, we're in our series, Simple Christmas, and we've been looking at how we can make room for the most important gift and really the simplicity surrounding Christmas. And the first message, we looked at the fact that we need to slow down this season so that we don't mess up its reason. And then last week, we looked at the fact that God actually might allow or add complexity in our life, but he actually offers truth to simplify our life's complexities. And so may, maybe it's a complex season for you this, this year. And so what, what you can actually speak over your life are these truths that will help you simplify life's complexities. Now, while the Christmas season is one of busyness and complexity, it is also a time of wonder. Everybody say wonder. Now here's what I mean by wonder. It's the unexpected, the inexplicable the feeling of surprise or the mystery or mysterious, experiencing something strange or new, uh, something that leaves us mesmerized and in awe, something that stops us in our tracks and leaves us speechless, something that stuns us and blows us away. Now, when I was thinking about this whole idea of wonder and Christmas is a time of wonder, I, I do remember growing up, it really was this, this amazing season of wonder. I, I would anticipate every year Christmas Day as a kid. And, I, you know, I was one of those selfish kids that I would always count the presents and make sure that my younger brother had at least as, as many or even less than I did, all right? And, and, but I just remember that time and I, I would remember, you know, opening up our gifts, spending that time together, going to my grandparents' house after we opened gifts. And it really was just a, an amazing time for me as a child. But the older I got, it, it seems like somehow in some way I was anchored more into reality and somehow I de-wonderized, I just made up that word, de-wonderized Christmas. And so while, while, you know, I would say the, the hat has changed in the sense that now Joni and I, we are really the, the givers of, of, of presents and uh, we're the ones managing what happens on Christmas Day. There's this, there's this feeling that I, I get that I really want to somehow recapture the sense of wonder that I had when I was a kid. I think that's the reason why I love the Christmas classic Christmas Vacation so much. Because if you've seen the movie, Clark Griswold, he longs to recapture what he remembers as a child. And it just doesn't go according to plan. And it isn't until the very end where he just really gets to the, to the reality that it's just really about family. Just being present with family. Not all the little things that you do. It's just really being present with your family. That's the wonder of Christmas. But he spent the entire movie trying to recapture the sense of wonder. I believe with all of my heart that every single person on planet earth, regardless of age, longs for a sense of wonder. And that, that for many here engaging with us online, you have lost the sense of wonder. Maybe you're trying to recapture it. Maybe you never had it. But you know that 
that Christmas time should be, if any other time throughout the year would be, it would be Christmas time is the sense of wonder. And so here's the main point that we will unpack this morning. Christmas is the simple sign pointing people to the world of wonder. And I'm, I'm using the definite article, the, on purpose. Christmas doesn't lead us to a world of wonder. It leads us to the world of wonder. Why? Because Christmas points to this amazing time, the most amazing time when God became man. It's the world of wonder. And this God man, he brings, he ushers in this world of wonder where he is, he is ushering in new creation. That is the reason why Christmas is a simple sign pointing people, all people, to the world of wonder. It just reminds me of this song. Star of wonder, star of light, star with royal beauty bright. It really is a time of wonder. So with that, let's stand as we honor the reading of God's word, Matthew 2, and we will see how the Magi, how they were led to the world of wonder. So verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem simply means house of bread. If you know your Bible, you know that that's where Rachel was buried, that's where David, King David was born, and is also where Ruth and Boaz got married. So Bethlehem is a historical place in the Old Testament, and we also will see that Bethlehem is going to be the birthplace of the messianic king, the cosmic king. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, I always love to have fun at Christmas time for all of those of you who put up nativity sets like we do. Uh, for years, I would grab the wise men and I would put them in the far east corner of our house. Joni would come in, where's the wise men? Well, the wise men were not present at Jesus' birth. So when Jesus is at the manger, the wise men weren't there. Sure, the shepherds were there. So if you just want to be accurate, biblically accurate, take your wise men, find the far corner of the east side of your house. That's where you put the wise men. And you're welcome. So, so, so they came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was quite disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Wink, wink. That's what Herod's doing. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. There's the wonder. They, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's what the original language said. I mean, it's four times overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Father, may you be glorified. Jesus, may you be the center of this message and may our lives revolve. May we just reattune our lives to revolve around you and your kingship, your lordship. Spirit, I pray that you would work in our life right now through the preaching of your word to draw us to yourself, to conform us more into the image of Jesus. I pray for those who are far from Jesus this morning, that they're exploring, that they're trying to figure out who this Jesus might be. Maybe they were invited. I do pray that you would work through the, the, the preaching of your word to do a new work in their life that they might come to know Jesus for the very first time and give their life to him as Savior and Lord. And it's in your name we pray. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So what we're going to look at this morning surrounding this main point that Christmas is a simple sign pointing people to the world of wonder are three questions and three answers that demonstrate that truth. So question and answer number one, why do the wise men leave? Why do the wise men leave? And the answer is the wonder of the star. Now we are introduced in the very first verse to some magi or wise men from the east. So, so we don't really know much about the magi or the wise men. We definitely know that they are from the east. So uh, they, they are, according to many scholars, they are they either Medes, Babylonians, or Persians. And many scholars would say that they're definitely more than three. Well, why in the world do we say three? Well, we three kings of Orient are. And, some, and then also church history actually have, you know, has given them names. But at the end of the day, there's probably more than three wise men. And here's another thing that we would know is that they would be traveling in this large caravan. Why? Because they are a priestly caste who played an important role in advising the king. And it applied more widely to learned men and priests who specialize in astrology and the interpretation of dreams and in some cases the, the magical arts and even some scholars believe that they actually played a role in picking kings. So this is a noble class, a wealthy class, so they're going to travel in a large caravan for protection. And they're actually going to travel probably somewhere over 800 miles to get to Jerusalem. So they're not taking a car, they're not Ubering, they're not taking a train, they're not getting on a plane, a little puddle jumper jumping from where they are to Jerusalem. This is a, this is a long distance journey that they will have to take. And so this group of people saw a star and figured it to be a sign that communicated that the king of the Jews had been born. Now, what kind of star was it, Joshua? We really don't know, but it really doesn't matter. But just because you want to know that you, you got four options. Uh, one, it could have been the aligning of the planets. It could have been a supernova. It could have been a large comet flying over the sky. It could have been a supernatural bright star in the universe. But again, we don't know. All we know is that these wise men who at least partook in astrology, they see this bright shining star and they think to themselves, the king of the Jews must be born. Now, now here's, here's the, the important question, at least the first important question. How in the world would this group of leaders know anything about a Jewish prophecy? They're not Jewish. They're pagans, they're Gentiles. So how would this group of leaders know anything about a Jewish prophecy concerning a Jewish messianic king? 
Well, if you rewind back into the Old Testament, you will find how God's people disobeyed him. And how he told them, if you disobey me and you chase after other gods, I'm going to lead you into exile. I'm going to lead you into captivity. And so the southern portion of Israel, Judah, they followed after other gods. God then raised up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And he had them sack Jerusalem and take them into captivity and in exile. And so what they did is that they would take these young young people of a noble birth, of of royalty, the elites, and then they would haul them off to Babylon. And so you had all of these teenagers that were wealthy or came from wealthy parents. They were hauled off into exile, and there they were put into Babylonian schools because they're going to assimilate now these Jews to make them good Babylonian Jews. Well, if you know your Bible and the book of Daniel, you are introduced to some of those teenagers, like Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat. I'm just joking, not a billy goat, but a Abednego. And then you're also just making sure you're paying attention. And then another teenager by the name of Daniel. Well, here's something that you need to know about Daniel if you don't know. So he was placed into, like, again, all of these teenagers, they scored high on their ACT, their SAT. And so they were given really official positions throughout the empire. Well, Daniel was part of the Magi. He was part of the wise men. Well, one day, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream. And he brings in all of the older wise men. He's like, here's my dream. Can you interpret my dream? Well, the wise men, they can't interpret it, so uh, they go back. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's hot. He's ticked off because he, well, why, did, why are they on the payroll if they can't do their job? And so he's going to kill them. But Daniel says, hey, Nebi, hey, King Nebi, do, do not kill them. I, I'll give you the interpretation. Just give me until morning. So Daniel goes back into his room. He begins to pray to the, the God of heaven. And then the God of heaven reveals to him Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpretation. So the next day, Daniel tells Nebi, I got you covered, tells him the dream, tells him the interpretation, and then Nebuchadnezzar gives him a raise and makes him the head of the wise men. And so everybody looks at Daniel because now Daniel has saved their tail. And undoubtedly, the, the God of heaven is able to communicate to Daniel and give him all this wisdom. And so now with Daniel, he also is told these prophecies concerning the Son of Man when the Ancient of Days will come to planet Earth and institute God's everlasting kingdom. And so you'll read this in like Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel, this is Daniel writing. The Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Daniel is probably communicating to the wise men. This is coming. And then he's probably even reaching back to other parts of the Old Testament. Like Numbers 24. And teaching the wise men about that passage. In Numbers 24. I see him but not here and now. I perceive him, but far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. So there's going to be a king, his star. He's the star that will rise from Jacob. He will emerge from Israel. And what Daniel's probably doing, he's connecting the son of man who's coming and that he will institute an everlasting dominion to Numbers 24. So for for centuries, the wise men were at least familiar with the prophecies of 
Daniel and of the Old Testament. So that's the reason why these wise men would even see the star and go, okay, well, you know, hundreds of years ago, Daniel talked about a star rising from Jacob, a scepter rising in Israel, and talked about this everlasting dominion where all nations would come and worship this king and be part of this kingdom. Maybe this is the star. But that, that's the first question. But here's the second question. Why do they leave to go and search for this king and the kingdom he would institute? All right, so we know this is at least why they would be familiar with this star and what this star was pointing to. But why would they leave? Why would they go over 800 miles to get to this king? To understand this kind of kingdom that he would institute. Here, here's what I would suggest, church. They longed for a new king and a new kingdom. See, if you think about it, these men are from a land that had a roller coaster of a history. This land for hundreds of years had seen war after war. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians. The Greeks had conquered the Persians. Then the Romans conquered the Greeks. In this land, there was no peace. There was no unity. This region hadn't seen peace. And then now to even even know of a king and a kingdom that would bring everlasting peace. Also, you have to actually keep in mind, too, of their status and position. They were part of the one percenters. I mean, they had everything that you could want. They had servants. They had gold. They They had wealth beyond comprehension in that time. But why? Why would they leave? Why would they risk everything? Because they were in search of a new king and a new kingdom. This reminds me of a book that I'm reading. It's entitled Leadership in Turbulent Times. And one of the leaders that this book traces is Abraham Lincoln. If you know anything about Abraham Lincoln, he grew up in extreme poverty. He, he was not educated. He actually had to educate himself. In, in fact, if he learned of a book six, 12 miles away, he would walk to go get that book and teach, him, and teach himself what was in that book. Early on in life, this is what the book talks about, that, that Lincoln knew that he was destined for a huge responsibility. And one family member went as far as to say that he believed that he was going to be used to create an alternative vision for the future. Why? Because he knew, just as other people longed for, everybody was in search of a better world. And if you look at immigration throughout the centuries, people came here to America in this newfound freedom and opportunity because they were in search of a better world. And see, what these magi, what these wise men were in search of was a new king, a new kingdom, a better world. I love what C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, what he writes. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, these wise men, they were in search of another world, another kingdom, a kingdom that would never end, would not be threatened by any outside enemy, a kingdom where there would be no poor nor needy, a kingdom where sickness and disease would be eradicated, a kingdom where love would abound, a kingdom where people would always do the right thing. They would say the right thing. A kingdom where there would be no violence or theft, no division, where peace would reign, where tears of sorrow and pain would never be shed, and a kingdom where death would be no more. This is the kingdom that they were in search 
for. And they saw the king's star. And they started to follow the star. Here's a question. What are signs that God uses today to point people to the world of wonder? So back then it was the star. What are the signs today? Church, I want you to realize the church is the main sign that God uses to point to the world of wonder. The church is. And so here's, here's the question that I, want, I, want, I really want to ask. Are you pointing people to the world of wonder through how you live? Here's another question. Are you unsatisfied with the world that is? Because until you get unsatisfied with the way the world is, will you ever look to King Jesus to allow him to satisfy you into the world that is to come? So that's why they left. Number two, here's the second question, second answer. Where do they go? Where do they go? Well, the answer is the wonder of the scriptures point the way. So where do they go? The wonder of the scriptures point the way. Well, so now that they've seen the sign, they know at the very least they are to head towards the Jewish homeland and capital, Jerusalem. Now, what is fascinating from this passage, it seems like they're the only ones. The, the wise men are the only ones that see this star. So they get to Jerusalem and they get an audience with King Herod. I mean, could you imagine? Again, large caravan, probably numbering hundreds if not thousands and the thousands of people in this caravan. They show up in Jerusalem and Herod's like, what's going on? Where's the party? And why wasn't I invited? And so they have this audience with the king and they tell King Herod, hey, that we've seen this star that is pointing to this newborn king of the Jews. Now here's what you need to know about Herod. Herod was an evil, wicked man. Everybody say evil. He was an evil, evil man. He actually killed a lot of family members. One family member he killed was his favorite wife. Now, why he would kill his favorite, don't know. Maybe she backtalked him one day. Maybe she burnt the chicken. We don't know. But he killed his favorite wife. I would think if you had many wives and you were going to kill one, kill the least favorite, not the favorite. But anyways, that's what he did. And then he also killed two of his sons because he was so paranoid. He was so insecure. In fact, Caesar in that day said it was, it was better. It was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. Here is an evil man. And so now this huge caravan of, of wise men, they come and they say, hey, uh, we saw the star of the newborn king. So you could imagine he's very insecure. He knows nothing about a newborn king. So he hides his suspicion and his insecurity well at least early on. And, and again, here, here's another reason why Herod was evil. So later on, after the wise men leave, guess what he does in Bethlehem to those kids who are two years of age and younger? He kills all of them. He's trying to wipe out the threat. Well, so as Herod learns about why the wise men are here, he doesn't know anything, so guess what he does? He calls all of the professors and scholars of the University of Jerusalem, and he says, hey guys, I need your help. And so he gathers them all together and says, hey, these guys out there, with, you've seen the large party, the caravan that's here. Yeah, they're here to see the newborn king of the Jews. Do you know where he's going to be born? And immediately, did you see this? Immediately, all of the scholars and professors and the pastors there in Jerusalem, they know exactly where the king of the Jews is to be born. So they reference Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and 4. So let me read it again. But you, 
Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So again, astoundingly, they've not seen the star, but they know exactly where the messianic king would be born at the house of bread in Bethlehem. But I, I want to dig just a little bit deeper about these three groups of people that we see in this passage. Let me dig a little bit deeper about Herod. Herod represents groups of people who are indignant. They're indignant of the coming of the king. I mean, here's the thing. Heather ha- yeah, Herod has all the authority. He's the one who sits on the throne. So he, he's the one who everybody's under his rule and reign, who's also under the rule and reign there of the Romans. But they've kind of given it to Herod. Hey, you, you got free reign here as long as you don't mess things up. But to learn of another king coming in that would threaten his rule and his reign, he becomes angry. He becomes indignant. Isn't that how people act today? Like they're fine with having a savior. They just don't want a king. They just don't want someone to rule over their life. They don't want someone to tell them what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And so when you start, you can talk about Jesus being the savior. But when you start about talking about Jesus being the Lord, people get a little angry. They get a little indignant. Why? Because they, they want to rule their own life. They want to be in charge. And so you are more like Herod than you are like the wise men. But then we see a group of people like the religious leaders and the scholars of the day. These people represent groups today that would be indifferent. They respond in indifference and apathy. I mean, here's the thing. They know where the king's going to be born, but they don't care. Because neither Herod nor the religious leaders go with the Magi to see what they believe is happening. It does remind me today of many in the church, they are becoming indifferent and apathetic to the things of God. They have a theistic worldview. They have a biblical worldview. They believe in Jesus, but they're just really indifferent. Nothing in their life is showing this conviction and passion that they really believe. They intellectually believe. But they're indifferent. They have a head full of knowledge, but a heart of stone. And then we see those who are inquisitive, and they're represented by the wise men. They're in search of a better king. They're in search of a better world, and they're willing to go to extreme lengths to see this king, to see what he's going to do. And they're inquisitive, and they want to find the king. They want to be part of his kingdom. And notice, notice, how they are led further on their journey. Do you you see how they're led further on the journey? What is spoken to them? The scriptures. The scriptures. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, it, it is believed that they knew at least some of the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies. So their journey was already prompted by the scriptures, but their journey is continuing because of the scriptures. And so it becomes crystal clear that the scriptures give direction to the world of wonder. Church, the scriptures, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation gives the direction to the world of wonder. Don't lose the scriptures. Because if you lose the scriptures, you'll lose direction. And it has been said by a host of people that the entire Bible points to Jesus. 
It's been said that Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the better Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he is the judge and rescuer of God's people. In Ruth, he is the family member come to redeem. In First and Second Samuel, he's the greater prophet of the Lord. In First and Second Kings, he is the greater king. In First and Second Chronicle, he is the greatest and more glorious temple. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the city. In Esther, he is the one that steps into the gap to rescue. In Job, he is the redeemer that lives. In Psalm, he is the Lord our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's the wisdom of God. In Song of Solomon, he is the bridegroom and love of our life. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet weeping over our sin. In Ezekiel and Daniel, he is the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. In Hosea, he is the faithful one. In Joel, he is the one who will baptize his people in the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is the burden barrier. In Obadiah, he's the mighty savior. In Jonah, he is the sender to and the forgiver of nations. In Micah, he is the child born in Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's people. In Habakkuk, he is the great intercessor crying out for revival. In Zephaniah, he is the restorer of the remnant. In Haggai, he is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he is the pure son. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. All of the Bible points to Jesus. And that's just the Old Testament. I ain't got time to go through the New Testament, but that's where that, that's the wise men, they would have they known that. Here's the principle. The scriptures guide us to the world of wonder. Don't forget that. Just think about it. So we've, we've seen how in Genesis, God brought creation into existence through his word. And in John 1, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus, he is the word become flesh. He is God incarnate to bring about new creation. I want you to understand it is God's word that brings us to life. That's why we cannot lose his word. It's in God's word we learn what it means to be a healthy individual. It's in God's word we learn to love our wives as Christ loved the church and to honor and love our husband. It's in the word we learn how to parent, to train up a child in the way they should go. It's in the word we learn how to be a friend because a friend loves at all times. In the word we learn how to be a good neighbor. In the word we learn why we work, how we work. In the word we learn to love in the word, we learn what it means to be unified in our diversity. It's in the word, we learn what it means to steward our time, our talents, and our treasures. Here is what's so sad today, church. Is that 26% of people that would classify themselves as evangelicals, conservative Christians, 26% do not believe that the Bible is literally true. This, this is the State of Theology report research that just came out a few months ago. 20, one in four people who attend church do not believe that the Bible is literally true. And then 53% of U.S. adults do not believe that the Bible is literally true. Listen, if you lose the scriptures, you lose the way. But 
But here's what we believe at Northland Church. Just so that you know, here's what we believe about the scriptures. That God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God's word will not return void, but will accomplish what God desires. God's word is powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. It is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. God's word is sanctifying and cleansing and purifying. It is protective. It is essential. And it is filling, and it is without error. It won't lead you astray. That's what we believe. And the and the reason why the wise men made it to Bethlehem was because of the scriptures. The scriptures led the way to King Jesus, the world of wonder. Everybody, all right? I'm having fun preaching the Bible this morning. I don't know if you're having as good of fun listening, but I'm having fun preaching. Number three, the third question and the answer. Why do they see and what do they do? So who do they see and then what do they do? And so we see the answer, the wonder of the sovereign. They see the wonder of the sovereign. They see the wonder of the king. So let's pick up in verse nine. So after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them and it stopped over the place where the child was. Do, do you, you see, like it's, it's fairly, it's, it's actually fairly astonishing. So they see the star back in their homeland and they begin their journey. Somehow the star disappears. We, we don't know. It's, it's as if they, they haven't seen the star for quite some time. They get to Jerusalem and then the religious leaders tell Herod, hey, it's in Bethlehem. Now they go to Bethlehem and then the star reappears. Could you imagine? how you would feel if you came to Bethlehem and the star reappears. And we see what happens when they saw the star in verse 10. They were overjoyed. There's the wonder. There's the wonder. If you look back at how you came to know Jesus, I promise you, your journey was filled with wonder of how God had aligned everything around you to lead you to the place of finding the wonder of the world. And so they're overjoyed. So they see the star. Verse 11, on coming to the house. There we go, the house. They're not in a stable. Jesus is not in the manger anymore. He's in a house. And so they go into the house and they saw the child with his mother Mary. So they see the star, now they see the house. And they enter into the house. Could you imagine? They don't know that they don't know this baby's name. And I bet you they are surprised. Why? Because when they started the journey, they're thinking they're going to go find the king, the messianic king, the cosmic king. And he's going to be in this beautiful palace. Here he is in this small little house in Bethlehem. But yet they go in and they see the child. And I could only imagine Mary and Joseph being a little bit taken back, a little bit like, oh, what's going on? You got like a thousand people out here that's traveled afar. And they walk in. And I bet you one of the first questions maybe they asked was, what's his name? His name's Jesus. What does Jesus mean in Hebrew? The Lord is salvation. So they see the star. They see the child. But did you notice how they respond? The first thing they do is they bow down and worship him. So it's the posture. Church, I'm so convicted of this. 
I mean, yes, I, I want to have a posture that is always humble to the king. And so when I come here and I worship with, with you and we worship through songs, yes, there are times where I open up my hand to receive what the king has. There are times when I hold my hands up to testify who the king is. But what the wise men do, I'm convicted. Because immediately when they saw the child, they bowed down. That's the posture of those who recognize the king. They bow down. We do realize who we serve. We serve the cosmic king. He's greater than us. He's more significant than us. He's more omnipotent than us. He's more omniscient than us. I mean, this is the king, the cosmic king. This is the posture. Is this the kind of posture that we have? Again, I'm convicted of this. Is that the posture that I have to Jesus every single day that I live? And so it's this posture, they bow down. But then there's these gifts. And they give three gifts fit for a king. Gold, representing Jesus' position as king. Frankincense, representing Jesus' position as priest. Myrrh, representing Jesus' position as the sacrificial lamb, that he will die. Let me ask, church, again, conviction here. I'm preaching more out of conviction than I am to you. I'm I'm preaching with us. (laughs) Are we offering our bodies as living sacrifices? Are we offering treasures fit for a king? One of the things that I have said over the years, the cost of your gift reflects the greatness of your Savior. See, if it doesn't cost you anything to follow Jesus, we're saying he's not that great. But when they bow down and they present gifts fit for a king, they're saying, you're great. You're worthy of this. And then loyalty. Did you see this in verse 12? Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Loyalty. To to, to this child born of peasants. So they they don't go back to Jerusalem. They take a detour to make sure they avoid Herod. Loyalty. In a day and age where our culture is increasingly wanting God to die. Why? So that they don't have, here's the thing. When God dies to someone, they they get to fall into the place of God. So when, when they kill God in their mind and in their heart, they get to slide right in and they get to be God. So in a day and age where our culture is increasingly wanting God to die, we must not let the culture infiltrate the church and let it happen. Yeah. You, you say, what does that mean, Josh? We need to be loyal to King Jesus. We don't need to start making concessions to pacify a pagan world. And that's exactly what is transpiring in the 21st century. We're watering down the word. We're watering down Jesus' lordship. All for the sake, well, we got we to gotta love the world. And we, you know, we, we got we to make them feel good. No, we, oh my goodness. We were born in sin. All of us. If you, yeah, all right. I, I'm, I'm about to preach and I, you know, I just need to calm down, calm down. We can be loyal to King Jesus and love the world at the same time. Because Jesus, he was the God-man who came to die for the world. But he's not dying for them so that they feel good about their sin. 
Here's how you know, church, here's how you know you've met the sovereign king of the world. Here's how you know that you have experienced and been transformed by the world of wonder. Now, this is how you know. This is the fruit. This is not how. I want you to hear me. This is not how you are saved. These are the fruits that you have been saved, that you have been transformed and experienced by the world of wonder. You will posture yourself as a humble servant. That's fruit number one. That's what the wise men do. They posture themselves as a humble servant. Then they presented gifts as grateful servants. So again, fruit, not, this is not what you do to be saved. These are fruits of salvation that we will present our bodies as, as living sacrifices. That our bodies will be a fragrant aroma to Jesus, to King Jesus. And then we'll practice loyalty as faithful servants. So if you want to know that you've been transformed by the world of wonder, that Christmas is truly the simple sign that has pointed you to the world of wonder, you will do those things because those things will be the fruit of your transformation because you are part of the world of wonder. Let's pray. Father, what a good and glorious God we serve that over 2,000 years ago, there appeared a sign in the sky and that somehow only reached the eyes of a group of wise men. And they actually show us what it looks like to follow a simple sign pointing people to the world of wonder. Church, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, let me ask you, have you found the world of wonder? Have you found Jesus? He is the world, the world of wonder. Not a world of wonder. He is the world of wonder. That's how you have a simple Christmas is that when you will be able to stop long enough to attune your heart and your mind to knowing that this time is when the God of the universe broke into time and space so that he could connect with you. That's the world of wonder. And not only to connect, but to usher in new creation, to make you new, to remake the world where there will be no more sin, effects of sin. That's the world of wonder. Church, that's, that's who we worship, the world of wonder. And his name is Jesus. Thank you for coming. It's in your name we pray. Amen.